Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 1, Episode 12, Nixon vs. Kennedy. The 1960 presidential election between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy has finally arrived. Mad Men has portrayed the candidate's fierce campaign throughout its first season. The idea is introduced as an afterthought to episode one, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. Throughout the season, Sterling Cooper's involvement with the Nixon campaign remains elusive. The agency's most tangible impact on the election is shown in episode nine, Shoot, when Pete and Harry buy commercial placements to keep Kennedy off television. We discussed Nixon's history in episode 10, Long Weekend, when I claimed that understanding Nixon is critical to understanding Don Draper. In that episode, Don lamented Nixon's uninspired ads. Kennedy's ads were fresher, trite, but more memorable. In our last episode, Indian Summer, Roger commented on Nixon's appearance during the first televised presidential debate. Season 1's penultimate episode, Nixon vs. Kennedy, was written and produced by Andre and Marie Jacques Metten. Writer Lisa Albert is also credited. Alan Taylor returned to his role as director for the first episode since Mad Men's pilot. It's an episode notable to me for its unique structure, the first half superficially unrelated to the last, and it finally makes prominent the election that's lurked in the background of our show and of the decade's raucous opening year. Massachusetts Senator John F. Kennedy announced his presidential campaign on January 2, 1960 he had decided to run for office as early as 1956. Kennedy first campaigned for nomination within the Democratic Party, facing competition from California Governor Pat Brown, Minnesota Senator Hubert Humphrey, and Texas Senator Lyndon Johnson. But Kennedy dealt with each challenger and was nominated for president at the Democratic National Convention on July 13, 1960. Kennedy offered Lyndon Johnson the vice presidential nomination the following morning at the Los Angeles Biltmore Hotel. The decision to work with Johnson surprised many people at the time, and has been heavily debated since. Some biographers justified the move as politically necessary, that Kennedy needed Johnson to help him carry the southern states and win the election. Some speculate that Johnson conspired with FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover to blackmail Kennedy. When asked if he had expected Johnson to accept the candidacy, Robert Kennedy said, The whole story will never be known, and it's just as well that it won't be. The only people who were involved in the discussions were Jack and myself. We both promised each other that we'd never tell what happened. Nixon took a more straightforward path to the nomination. After some equivocation, he announced his candidacy on January 9, 1960, just one week after Kennedy. Nixon became the first sitting vice president to run in 100 years. He chose United Nations Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge as his running mate. Nixon faced little competition within the Republican Party, and was nominated on July 27, 1960. Many voters saw the 1960 presidential election as the ushering in of a new era in America. Both Kennedy, 43, and Nixon, 47, were viewed as much younger than the traditional president. It was the first election of the 20th century contested by men born in the 20th century. The campaign centered on several prominent issues, the Cold War with the Soviet Union, the Eisenhower recession, the space race, and growing calls for civil rights. Campaign events drew large, enthusiastic crowds. Nixon promised peace and prosperity, 
a continuation of the Eisenhower years. Kennedy emphasized his youth and claimed he was seasoned through and through, but not so doggone seasoned that he won't try something new. By the summer of 1960, polls gave Nixon a slight advantage, but Kennedy made concerted efforts in key swing states, while Nixon followed through on a pledge to campaign in all 50 states. In August, Nixon injured his knee, halting his campaign for two weeks as he recovered in the hospital. Nixon had not fully recovered from an infection when he took the stage for 1960's first presidential debate. An estimated 70 million viewers tuned in for the first televised debate in American history. Nixon appeared pale and underweight. He hadn't shaven and his suit blended in with the backdrop of the stage. Kennedy, by contrast, looked calm and prepared. Political pundits declared the debate a win for Kennedy. But while it's often claimed that Kennedy won overwhelmingly, a survey of viewers showed Kennedy and Nixon essentially tied. Kennedy's momentum persisted through the fall as he took the lead in national polls. The candidates would debate three more times, but none were as widely viewed as the first. On Sunday, November 6th, Nixon visited Alaska, completing his 50-state campaign pledge just two days before the election. A Gallup poll released that day announced 49% for Kennedy versus 48% for Nixon. I'm going to structure this recap around the events of November 8th and 9th, 1960. It's easy to get lost in Madman's story, but I want to ground that story in the actual events as they unfolded, adding historical context where appropriate. So now that I've set your expectations, let's jump back a few years and relive Election Day, 1960, a day that seemingly launched our characters into a new, unknown world. Tuesday, November 8th, 1960, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We have followed the senator all day, and it went like this. After Mrs. Kennedy was driven to Boston from here, they went to the foot of Beacon Hill in Boston and voted in the basement of a defunct library. It did not seem like an historic occasion. The senator whispered a few words of instructions to his wife. She went into one booth, he into another, and it was all over except for the photographers. By mid-afternoon, many Americans flocked to the polls to decide the country's future. Vice President Nixon voted earlier that day in Whittier, California, before heading to a party at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Senator Kennedy voted with his wife in Boston, Massachusetts, and returned to Hyannisport. The polls would not close for several hours. A TV in Burt Cooper's office shows Americans in line at the polls. Don enters with Herman Phillips, an account executive who had worked in London with the agency Y&R. Y&R was founded by John Orr Young and Raymond Rubicamp in 1923. Throughout the 60s, Y&R was headquartered in New York at 285 Madison Avenue. The agency succeeded through its relationships with radio stars like Jack Benny. In 1944, Y&R opened its first office abroad, in London. Herman insists they call him Duck. Cooper grills Duck with questions, leery that he would make a move from a more prominent firm like Y&R. Duck says he's tired of England and ready to come to New York. He takes a shot at flattering Cooper, saying, If I say I'm voting for Nixon, you'll think I'm flattering you. And if I say I'm voting for Kennedy, you'll try to reform me. So I'll say Nixon. Cooper seems indifferent. But Don seems excited about Duck. They tour the office together, a shot tracking across the junior execs who watch from the secretary pool. I know that guy, Ken says. He's the best one Draper's paraded around. Let's see if Cooper is smart enough to know that. The conversation shifts as they discuss the party they're planning for election night. Paul makes a joke about wives, but Harry takes offense. That's my wife, Harry says. He lights a cigarette, perhaps nervous, hinting that maybe he's having trouble at home. 
Despite Harry's attempts to quit during season one, actor Rich Summer stated he smoked 50 cigarettes a day filming the show. Pete's not going to the party that night. He looks at Don ominously, reminding us of the package he stole in Indian Summer. Remember that Pete petitioned for the head of accounts job in our last episode. In Nixon vs. Kennedy, he senses the opportunity left by Roger's absence and strives to capitalize on it. Pete approaches Don's office and walks past Peggy without a word, but she stops him before he can enter. I think this is a neat little scene that harkens back to the pilot episode when Peggy was too meek to prevent Pete from rummaging through Don's office. Here Peggy stands up to him. Peggy eventually buzzes him in. He sits down opposite Don. Actor John Hamm broke his right hand shooting scenes for this episode, and though it's mostly hidden by a telephone on his desk, you can see a portion of the cast in one of these shots. Don does almost everything left-handed in this scene, including smoking and thumbing through some papers. Pete asks Don to reconsider. I have the loyalty of our most important clients, Pete says. Men younger than me have this job at larger firms. But Don isn't interested in giving this job to Pete. He suggests Pete be patient and continue to work hard. Don leaves the office that evening, a coat draped over his broken hand. Many of the younger employees stand around quietly. Harry chats with Don on his way out. But as soon as Don has left, the party starts. He's gone, Harry shouts. Peggy sits alone, working at her typewriter. They pull up a TV and turn on the election coverage. With early returns just coming in, our NBC computer is putting Senator Kennedy's odds for a victory at a grim-sounding 22 to 1. <laughs> Nixon's early success raises spirits at the office. They cheer the news and pour drinks. But Paul finds the bottle of scotch empty. Joan allows the others to raid the liquor closet. What do we have extra of? Ken asks. Rum and creme de menthe, she answers. A few minutes later, they fill up a water cooler with green punch. It's often believed that Kennedy ascended to the presidency on a wave of youth, but Mad Men cuts through this revisionism quite incisively in Nixon vs. Kennedy. Throughout the episode, we see the younger Sterling Cooper employees reveling in Nixon's victory. In hindsight, we think these people ought to be cheering for Kennedy. But Sterling Cooper had supported Nixon throughout the campaign, and this election was not a landslide. The nation was divided, and many young people supported Nixon. We've discussed the movie The Apartments' influence on Mad Men in episode 10, Long Weekend. Sterling Cooper's Nixon-Kennedy election party shows how the film influenced people in its time, normalizing unruly office parties filled with cigarettes, alcohol, and sex. Amidst the party, Ken tackles Allison, a secretary, to the floor. He pulls up her skirt to reveal her panties. You can tell me, or I can find out. What color panties are you wearing? What? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, blue! Who had blue? <laughs> Madman based this scene on a column written by Helen Gurley Brown in 1991 amidst Anita Hill's testimony about sexual harassment. Brown's column refers to the practice as scuttling. Some fans have speculated that the blue panties foreshadow Kennedy's victory. No one at the party shows much concern over Ken's behavior. Marge stands by Peggy's desk, disgusted. I used to think I'd find a husband here, she says. Peggy gets up to leave for the night, and Marge is left alone, pouring what's left of Peggy's drink into her own. Tuesday, November 8, 1960, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm down in Wall Street in mid-Manhattan with our RCA 501 computer. 
And very shortly, as soon as about only one-tenth of the total vote is in, we are going to have what we call projections. That is estimates on what the final vote will be in a popular and then what the final vote will be in the Electoral College. Well, now... As the election results rolled in, many Americans sat in their living rooms glued to the television coverage. Alongside traditional reporting, 1960s election coverage introduced a new device, the computer. For the first time, media outlets reported projections about the results. The early returns were extremely close, and the computed odds jumped and flip-flopped wildly. At the 1 million vote mark, Kennedy led Nixon by about 2,000 votes. The first precincts in New York reported a 144-66 to 66 advantage for Nixon. Betty and Sally sit in the Draper's living room watching the results on TV. Don arrives, seemingly still frustrated with his marriage. His conversation with Betty is distant. The couple rarely makes eye contact. Don holds Sally with his swollen right hand. Betty proclaims that their precinct turned out heavily for Nixon. It's a fun reminder of her feud with Helen Bishop, the Draper's neighbor, and an enthusiastic Kennedy supporter. Meanwhile, Pete sits in his living room, combing through Adam's shoebox. The box contains dog tags, letters, and photographs. Pete studies one of these, a picture of a younger Don riding a horse with his baby brother. He turns the photo over to see a note on the back, Dick and Adam, 1944. Trudy walks into the living room and interrupts. She says that Pete's obsessed with that box. Throughout this exchange, Trudy implies that the contents are sexual. She's frightened by what's inside the box. My father had a box like that, she begins. You should return it. It doesn't belong to you. Tuesday, November 8th, 1960, 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The election's slim margins gradually widened as votes were counted in many northern and eastern states. Kennedy was favored in these areas due to their large Catholic populations. But more surprising was Kennedy's success in the South, and particularly in Illinois. Early leads in many states made a Kennedy victory seem inevitable. Back at Sterling Cooper, Ken walks out of Paul's office and holds up some papers. Death is my client, he announces, a play in one act by Paul Kinsey. Paul chases after Ken, embarrassed trying to get the script. Ken reads some lines, including the Mad Men favorite, an animal in the boardroom and the bedroom. The others laugh. Before long, Joan, Sal, and Hildy stand atop a makeshift stage on the office steps. Nixon versus Kennedy makes extensive use of the Sterling Cooper office, showing more of the set than any episode in season one. Paul looks on sternly, smoking a pipe as he provides direction to the actors. This scene really highlights Paul's insecurity contrasting his enthusiasm about the script with the hollow acting from Joan, Sal, and Hildy. The play unfolds seemingly as Paul's fantasy. It mentions an antagonist named Cosgrove, but focuses on Paul's version of the handsome, dapper businessman. You can sell anything to anyone, Joan says. Anyone but me. Sal looks into her eyes for a moment before they kiss. The audience erupts in applause, and you can see one of the extras spill a drink on herself. Sal turns to them beaming, but Joan looks into him, sensing something awkward about that kiss. Wednesday, November 9th, 1960, 2 a.m., Eastern Standard Time. As states in the Mid and Mountain West began to report their vote, Nixon narrowed Kennedy's lead. Illinois remained too close to call throughout election night. Texas also reported narrow margins. For the first time in U.S. history, the state of Alaska participated in a presidential election, 
its first reported votes numbering 13 to 5 in favor of Kennedy. Many larger states and the presidency still hung in the balance. The office party continues late into the night. Sal dances with Joan, Ken with Allison, and Harry with Hildy. Recall that Mad Men showed Harry dancing with Hildy back in episode 8, The Hobo Code. They stop to gather around the TV as a news anchor reports that Nixon has won Ohio. Amidst the cheers, Harry turns and excitedly kisses Hildy. They look at each other embarrassed, then kiss again. Harry rushes away to his office, and Hildy chases after him. He stumbles to collect his things. It didn't mean anything, Hildy says. Harry takes off his glasses to apologize. I feel awful. Oh, uh, it was me. I'm drunk. I'm happy. Not myself. I've never really seen your eyes before. Well, there they are. Just the two of them. I mentioned that Harry might be showing some anxiety about his marriage. Mad Men has kept Harry's personal life mostly under the radar. We know he's dutifully married, and he expresses boredom with his marriage in a few episodes. But his earlier agitation at Paul's joke suggests there may be an underlying issue in Harry's marriage. And his excuses, I'm happy, not myself, suggest he's grown more disappointed with his life. Acting out with Hildy is perhaps an expression of this disappointment. Wednesday, November 9th, 1960, 3 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I want to say that one of the great features of America is that uh, we have political contests, that they are very hard fought, as this one is hard fought, and once the decision is made, we unite behind the man who is elected. I want all of you to know, I want all of I want all I want, I want Senator Kennedy to know, and I want all of you to know, that uh, certainly if this trend does continue, and uh, he does become our next president, that he will have my wholehearted support and your support. In the early hours of November 9, 1960, Nixon spoke to his supporters at the Ambassador Hotel. He gave a vague speech acknowledging Kennedy as the likely winner, but did not explicitly concede the election. Results from the West Coast continued to narrow Kennedy's popular vote margin, but Kennedy's electoral lead was nearly insurmountable. Reporters were confused by Nixon's speech and noted that it was not a traditional concession. The New York Times prepared a story declaring Kennedy the victor. Its editors hoped that late votes would not change the results, as notoriously happened in 1948, when the Chicago Tribune published the erroneous headline, Dewey Defeats Truman. A shock pans through the Sterling Cooper office, employees passed out on couches as the party winds down. Paul broods on the steps and invites Joan to sit with him. What did I do wrong? He asks. You have a big mouth, she says. It's a very melancholy scene, another of Mad Men's hints about their past relationship. You look so different when you're drunk, Joan says. She compares Paul to Orson Welles. These lines were taken directly from Matthew Weiner's conversations with Michael Gladys during Mad Men's production. Paul stands and offers Joan his hand. That's it, she asks. He invites her to dance, and they cha-cha in the low light of the office as the night of raucous celebration fades into morning. Wednesday, November 9th, 1960, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
So it's not fair to say it's decided in any sense? No, it's, it's not officially uh, decided at all. However, Senator Kennedy certainly, as our computer, our RCA 501 computer says, there's about a 300 to 1 chance in favor of Senator Kennedy. Americans awoke to a yet undecided contest on the morning of November 9, 1960. Votes trickled in from several narrowly contested states, including California, Texas, and Illinois. Nixon's speech was not treated as an official concession, and Kennedy's campaign waited to declare victory. We should recognize that this was the latest America had ever waited for a victor, and it would stand that way for another 40 years until the 2000 election. And then the 2020 election happened. Harry and Hildy wake on his office sofa. The morning light floods into the room as they dress, their backs turned to one another. Harry searches for his glasses, but finds them broken on the floor. I hope I didn't step on them, Hildy says. He tapes the frame together as she insists last night didn't mean anything. There's a funny shot at the end of this scene, when Hildy makes sure the coast is clear before embarrassedly leaving Harry's office. She's followed by Allison, who does the same, exiting Ken's office. Peggy finds the building in shambles that morning. She walks to her desk and finds an awful green vomit in her trash can. Peggy moves to the break room, where she finds Paul, Harry, Sal, and Ken wearing yesterday's suits and nursing hangovers. Scenes like this show the physical consequences of overindulgence, that all that drinking, smoking, and partying takes its toll. Mad Men portrays the lavish parties made famous by the apartment, but it also shows the consequences, the coughing, the hangovers, the exhaustion. Remember this scene before you decide to throw your next rager. Peggy opens her locker and finds money stolen from her wallet. She accuses the boys, but they say they had nothing to do with it. She grows upset and declares she'll report them to building security. Don enters Burt Cooper's office, confused by the election results. I've read three newspapers with three different results, he says. Cooper lays on a table, getting a massage, his face obscured in darkness. I spent the night literally in a smoke-filled room at the Waldorf with every Republican luminary, save MacArthur and Jesus. There's been widespread fraud. Daly gave Joe Kennedy every corpse in Cook County. Otherwise, Nixon wins. Cooper explains that contesting the election would take weeks. It's no way to win, he says. Don argues that winning at all is better than losing. Through their conversation, Mad Men voices the ongoing arguments within the Republican Party. Several politicians petitioned Nixon to demand a recount, but Nixon prophetically decided to live for another day. Don is frustrated in defeat. What do we do now, he asks. Cooper seems optimistic, finding a silver lining in Nixon's loss. Neil from P&G said if Kennedy is willing to buy an election, he's probably willing to play ball with us. Uh, the optimism of the American corporation. It's a football game to them. Doesn't seem fair. Fair? Very good. Later that morning, Pete approaches Don's office, the shoebox under his arm. Peggy again protests, but this time Pete ignores her. He enters unannounced, shuts the door, and stands in Don's office. Pete asks Don to name him head of accounts, and Don again refuses. Pete then confronts Don about his identity. Donald Draper was an engineer in Korea, Pete accuses. He dropped off the map 10 years ago, though he'd be 43 years old now. Don recognizes Pete's attempt at blackmail and denies the accusations but Pete threatens to tell Cooper. Don stands up and moves toward him as Pete backs away. A subtext of physical violence permeates this scene. 
If your information is powerful enough to make someone do what you want, what else can it make them do? Don threatens. But when Pete runs out, Don's forceful denial fades to panic. He turns to lean over his desk, his back to the camera, flashing back to Korea. Dick Whitman hops out of a truck and onto a dirt road. He's led to camp by an army officer who claims there should have been 20 soldiers. The officer is Lieutenant Donald Draper, an engineer. He tells Dick their mission, to build an army field hospital. Mad Men includes few scenes on the subject, but it strives to portray the realities of war. Many enlisted men deserted. It was hell. It was a mess. And it was not at all glamorous. We've seen throughout season one how Don's life only moves forward. And in these flashback scenes, we see him running from one hell to another. Dick asks about the other men in the company. They were gone when I got here, says Lieutenant Draper. Draper is cynical about the war effort and asks Dick why he chose to enlist. What misconception traveled down the road and made you want to be here? A movie? No, I just wanted to leave. I bet you're reconsidering if this was a step up. Back in his office, Don takes the shoebox atop his desk and puts it in the drawer with his purple heart. He leaves in a rush and later walks into Rachel's office. Let's go away, Don says, sweating. He says they can go to California and start a new life. This scene always reminds me of classic Hollywood films like Casablanca, where the leading man and lady embrace and live happily ever after. But Mad Men subverts this trope. Don's voice rings with desperation, and Rachel leans away to look at him, frightened by his unease. Did something happen to Roger, she asks. But Don won't tell her what's happened. He persists, saying they have to leave now. You haven't thought this through, Rachel warns. She asks Don about his wife and kids, shocked that he would so readily leave them behind. Why are you doing this to me? And what kind of man are you? Go away, drop everything, leave your life? People do it every day. As the exchange continues, Rachel realizes that Don just wants to run from his problems. She yells at him to leave, heartbroken. This was a dalliance, a cheap affair. Rachel, don't. You don't want to run away with me, you just want to run away. You're a coward. Wednesday, November 9th, 1960, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I have a copy of a telegram which has been sent to Senator John F. Kennedy at Ionisport, Massachusetts. Uh, I'll read it through and then I'll have it available. I'll repeat it more slowly after we have... Uh, I've read the statement and I'll also answer questions. The telegram reads as follows. I want to repeat through this wire, congratulations and best wishes I extended to you on television last night. I know that you will have the united support of all Americans as you lead the nation in the cause of peace and freedom during the next four years. Telegram is signed, Richard Nixon. Nixon delivered his formal concession by mid-morning on November 9th. It was the end of, at that time, the longest night in the history of American politics. As news outlets reported the victory, Americans waited for an address from John Kennedy, the nation's new president-elect. Don returns to the office amidst reports of Kennedy's victory. There's a nice solo shot that captures him as the elevator doors open. It feels like Don's alone in his own thoughts, but the camera zooms out and we see others exit behind him. 
Don heads for his office, where he finds Peggy sitting on his sofa. Nixon versus Kennedy repeatedly shows Don's frustration as other characters invade his private life. He yells at Peggy to get out, but notices her sobbing and offers her a drink. The office has fired some of its elevator staff, and Peggy feels at fault for reporting her stolen money. Don shrugs this off, annoyed, but underneath the implied racism is the idea of fairness, one which Peggy voices. People who try to do the right thing get penalized for it, and it's not fair. Peggy's words seem to reach Don. He walks down the hall and finds Pete, who sits alone in the darkness, drinking in his office. Don confronts him, repeating some of Rachel's words. I'm hiring Doug Phillips. Don, don't make me go to Cooper. I'm not making you do anything. You haven't thought this through. Don calls Pete's bluff. How do you think Cooper will react, he says. Don marches out of the office, and Pete chases after, insistent. He stops Don in the middle of the secretary pool. What are you doing? Where are you going? I'm gonna take care of this right now. Is this some sort of thing like in the movies where I have a gun and you don't think I'm gonna shoot you? I will shoot you. I won't let you hold this over my head. So you would rather blow yourself up than make me head of accounts? Don continues toward Cooper's office. The route was a bit suspect, as the office set wasn't big enough to show as much movement as Matthew Weiner wanted in the scene. The actors actually walk away from Cooper's office on set. Pete follows Don through the hallway and stops him again. A television in the background shows Kennedy's first address as the president-elect. Pete appeals to Don one last time, exasperated, but Don voices one of the episode's central themes. Why can't you give me what I want? I've earned this job. I deserve it. Why? Because your parents are rich? Because you went to prep school and have a $5 haircut? You've been given everything. You've never worked for anything in your life. Mad Men has drawn comparisons between Nixon, Kennedy, Don, and Pete throughout season one. And in this episode, the election serves as a backdrop to Don and Pete's conflict. And just as it resolved 1960's heated campaign season, Nixon versus Kennedy concludes the struggle between Don and Pete. They stand outside Cooper's office, heated, hurriedly removing their shoes. Don enters and announces that he's decided to hire Duck as the new head of accounts. Well done, Cooper approves. Don and Pete linger silently. Cooper looks them over questioningly. What? he asks. I think the time Mad Men allows its dialogue is especially noticeable in this scene. It contributes to the tension in the room. Pete hesitates for a moment, but follows through with his threat. This man is not who he says he is. His real name is Dick Whitman, Pete says. It stands to reason that he is a deserter at the very least, and who knows what else. Cooper sits at his desk, pondering the accusation in a shot that looks past him and onto Don and Pete. Don's body language is, for perhaps the first time, uncomfortable. He lights a cigarette and glances as Cooper approaches. Cooper looks at him, pausing for just a moment before he moves to Pete. Mr. Campbell, who cares? What? Who cares? Both Don and Pete are stunned by Cooper's attitude. This country was built by men with worse stories than whatever you've imagined, Cooper says. He steps back and leans against his desk, imparting more wisdom. The Japanese have a saying, a man is whatever room he is in. And right now, Donald Draper is in this room. I assure you, there's more profit in forgetting this. I'd put your energy into bringing in accounts. Mad Men made significant investments to build the tension about Don's past, his conflict with Pete, and Bert's philosophy. 
The show alludes to Don's past throughout season one. We've seen hints of this as early as the pilot, when Don's purple heart falls out of his desk. Episode two, Ladies' Room, offered the name Dick Whitman. 5G introduced Don's younger brother, Adam, and the hobo code flashed back to his childhood. Pete has lurked throughout Mad Men's portrayal of the inner Don Draper. From the pilot, Don has tried to caution Pete. New Amsterdam gave his character motivation by showing us his judgmental father. The thing to understand about Pete is that pride rationalizes his deplorable behavior. He's motivated by success, and he genuinely thinks he deserves this job. Matthew Weiner commented on this in an interview with the Paley Center. One of the things that's amazing about about the, Pete and the way that Vincent plays him, which is just, he's just a person. And um, he does some despicable things, um, uh, but he also, you know, he, he, it's, it's exactly what he says. He wants what he wants. Nixon versus Kennedy was screened for a live audience at the Paley Center. The crowd erupted in applause after Cooper's speech. Mad Men devoted screen time to portraying Cooper's philosophy and connections to Japan from his conversations about Ayn Rand to the bonsai tree in his office. And this scene is the payoff. Cooper seems to embody the entrepreneurial spirit, concerned less with personal history than hard work. As Pete rushes away, Cooper offers more advice for Don. Keep an eye on him. One never knows how loyalty is born. We again flash back to Korea, where Dick digs a trench. As Lieutenant Draper leaves the tent, mortars explode around them. He dives into the ditch where he and Dick hole up amidst enemy gunfire. When the bullets stop, Dick stands and lights a cigarette. We didn't shoot back. That helps, Draper says. He looks at Dick's wet pants and laughs, thinking Dick wet himself. Dick drops his cigarette, igniting the gas on the ground. A fireball sends them flying into the dirt. Dick wakes up in the hospital, a bandage over his temple. Two men approach him, mistaking Dick for his commanding officer. Dick sees himself waking from the explosion, coughing and stumbling, his arm broken. He finds Lieutenant Draper's mangled body on the ground. It's at this moment that Dick realizes, I can be this guy who digs holes, or I can move forward. He removes his dog tags, tosses them over Draper's body, and takes the lieutenant's tags as his own. At the hospital, the officers tell Dick he's being awarded the Purple Heart for his service. You're going to be okay, one of the officers says, evoking a line from the pilot's pitch to Lucky Strike. They release Dick to the reserves for the remainder of his service, giving him one last order. Lieutenant Draper, Private Whitman, you were the last person who knew him in his chain of command. We'd like you to take him home. I think it would mean something. A train stops at a station in rural Pennsylvania where Dick sits next to an army chaplain. The chaplain is played by Derek Wright, the longtime stand-in for James Gandolfini on The Sopranos. Dick's family, his stepmother Abigail, his uncle Mac, and his younger brother Adam stand on the platform as the casket is hauled out. Dick sees them through the window of the train. Just go. I can't, he says to the chaplain. Adam notices Dick in the window of the train. I see him, he shouts. As the train pulls away, Adam chases after, heartbroken, calling out for his brother. A stranger on the train interrupts. It must be hard for you. Did you know him? A little. You got your whole life ahead of you. Forget that boy in the box. She gets up, touches Dick on the hand, and offers to buy him a drink. 
Dick looks at Adam for one last time before he turns away to follow the woman, and the persona of Don Draper is born. Wednesday, November 9th, 1960, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. To all Americans, I say that uh, the next four years are going to be difficult and challenging years for us all. The election uh, may have been a close one, but I think that there is general agreement by all of our citizens that a supreme national effort will be needed in the years ahead to move this country safely through the 1960s. In the early afternoon of November 9th, John Kennedy appeared in Hyannisport, Massachusetts to address the nation. Kennedy spoke to a country divided. The popular vote was won by only 100,000 votes, less than two-tenths of a percent. Several critical swing states, such as Illinois, California, and New Jersey, were decided by fewer than 1%. Hawaii was won by only 115 votes. Kennedy asked Americans to come together despite these differences, issuing the type of challenge that would become familiar in his speeches. He had overcome the odds. He had beaten Nixon, though the victory was not as dramatic as history's embellishment. On November 9, 1960, America embraced John Kennedy as its 35th president. He was the youngest man ever elected to the presidency. Accusations of fraud emerged in several states, most notably in Texas and Illinois. Republicans in Texas demanded a statewide recount, but found that the Board of Elections had already certified Kennedy's victory. Illinois State's Attorney Benjamin Adamowski spearheaded multiple efforts to challenge the results, but none succeeded. Nixon's campaign staff urged him to contest the election. Thurston Morton, a senator from Kentucky, sought recounts in 11 states, but only one state was overturned, Hawaii, in Kennedy's favor. The new president-elect called for reconciliation, but did not enter office with unanimous support. Don arrives home that evening and finds Betty asleep in the living room. The television shows a news segment that replays Nixon's fateful concession speech from the previous night. Don watches disappointed, and the episode fades to credits. What can I possibly say to do this episode justice? It's listed in TV Guide's 2009 list of the top television episodes of all time, at number 8. It's a favorite for many members of the cast, including Rich Summer and John Hamm. It's what Matthew Weiner calls the climax of season one, an episode that dramatically resolves many of Mad Men's ongoing stories. Director Alan Taylor's influence on this episode gives it a classically identifiable style, as shots zoom out from old television sets and pan over employees standing around the office. There are several intimate moments for Don, as he stands in the elevator or in his office, his back turned to the camera. Don's hospital scene is amazingly edited, with an interplay between Dick and Don unfolding through cuts between the explosion and the aftermath. Mad Men rarely attempts action scenes, and Nixon vs. Kennedy stands out in my mind for tackling the challenge. The structure of this episode is notable. The first half unfolds as a joyous, sinful party that explores the office set and spends time with many of the show's secondary characters. The second half is the somber, gut-wrenching resolution of Don's identity story. These parts, seemingly unrelated in tone and narrative, are woven together by the unfolding presidential election. Nixon versus Kennedy reinforces several notable motifs, including digging, trains, and the Nixon-Kennedy personas. We first see Dick digging holes as a boy in the hobo code. In Korea, he digs trenches for the military hospital. Digging could relate to a grave, perhaps indicating a death wish. Remember that this concept was introduced by Dr. Greta Gutman in Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. But I think the digging motif is best interpreted as Dick searching for something, that he's unsatisfied with himself, 
that this terrible life of poverty and loneliness follows the name Dick Whitman. Reinventing himself as Don Draper is his way to escape. Trains recur throughout season one, and we've discussed how they symbolize escape in episodes like Marriage of Figaro and The Hobo Code. Nixon vs. Kennedy shows perhaps the most significant example of this, the origin of Don Draper, a man who escapes his family and his past. We've also observed how Nixon and Kennedy parallel Don and Pete. 1960's unfolding campaign has been a backdrop to Don and Pete's unfolding conflict at the agency. The election that concluded the presidential race is a fitting historical anchor for an episode that builds Don and Pete's confrontations to a head. From Mad Men's first episode, Don has advised Pete about how to succeed at Sterling Cooper. Pete's largely ignored him, perhaps demanding recognition faster than he can earn it. The conclusion of Nixon vs. Kennedy shows Pete storming out of Cooper's office. We wonder if Pete will follow the path Don described in the pilot when he said, you'll die in that corner office, a mid-level executive with a little bit of hair. And you know why? Because no one will like you. Peggy, unlike Pete, has become Don's protege. She succeeds through diligence and by listening to Don's advice. In Nixon vs. Kennedy, Peggy breaks through to Don by verbalizing the episode's central theme, fairness. Mad Men asks many questions in this episode, through both dialogue and subtext. Should people who cheat win? Is it fair that some people are born into hardship? Is dishonesty a justifiable way to escape this hardship? Peggy's story isn't resolved in Nixon vs. Kennedy, but we sense that Mad Men still has things left to say about her in season one, and her ability to break through to Don seems unequaled. This is Rachel's last appearance in season one, the conclusion of her affair with Don. I think Don loved her uniquely, sensing in Rachel aspects of his own repression and longing for acceptance. His line, you know more about me than anyone, is hollow, but true. She's the first person he lets into his past. But Don seems unable to reconcile his own sins. The flashback shows him stealing another man's name and abandoning his baby brother Adam. Remember Don's words from 5G, my life moves in one direction, forward. Looking back is painful for Don. It forces him to confront his past wrongs. And because he can't embrace his past, he can't open up to Rachel. She's left to think that Don never loved her but I think she's wrong. Pete's confrontation eventually forces Don to confront his past. For perhaps the first time, he takes the challenge head on. Cooper's words are unexpected but poignant. Who cares? Don seems redeemable, despite his origins. But while others can forgive his past, Don doesn't seem able to forgive himself. He's not transformed by this moment. His identity crisis drives his mistreatment of other characters throughout the series. In the words of Matthew Weiner, I don't care if we're breaking rules about what a hero is. He's a real person. The office party has a few consequences, most notably its critical introduction of Death is My Client, a play in one act by Paul Kinsey, to the Mad Men fanbase. Joan grows suspicious about Sal's kiss. Harry's night with Hildy will cause trouble in his marriage. 1960's presidential election was one of many firsts. It was the first election contested by all 50 U.S. states, the first election heavily influenced by television from debates to campaign appearances and advertising. Nixon versus Kennedy changed the prevailing idea that being a Catholic was a disadvantage in national politics. It introduced Americans to the computer, amidst product advertising that beckoned to a future of technology and space travel. Perhaps most importantly, Nixon versus Kennedy was the first election contested by men of the 20th century. Both candidates subverted traditional ideas about how a president should look and act. It was an election that beckoned to the sweeping cultural revolution of the 1960s. This is how Mad Men sets up the remainder of its series, 
a decade of change our characters will contend with across seven seasons and 92 episodes. But remember the election wasn't a popular mandate. Kennedy didn't enter office on a wave of hopeful optimism. The vote was split almost 50-50, and much like the election, Mad Men will portray its ensemble cast divided about the 1960s upheaval of tradition and American life. And that concludes our review of Nixon versus Kennedy. We finally scratched the surface of the series' fundamental question, who is Don Draper? But while we've wrapped up most of season one, we've not reached the end of our story. Mad Men's finale, The Wheel, still remains. An episode that deals with the fallout of the election, Sterling Cooper's new head of accounts, and Peggy's developing career. We'll cover these topics and more in our next episode, a recap of the 13th and final episode of Mad Men's fateful first season. Hey everyone, I wanted to share a few quick announcements to wrap up the show. Number one, you may have noticed, but I've created some new episode art exclusively for season one. Number two, I've set up social media accounts that are linked in the episode description. You can now find me on Instagram and YouTube, where I'll release more Mad Men content. And finally, number three, I really appreciate your feedback and encourage you to like and comment on my episodes, and please subscribe to the podcast so you know when new content arrives. As always, you can reach out to me with any questions or comments. My email address is madmendeconstructedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and see you next episode.